This is the Fixer Upper Marriage Podcast, because marriage without maintenance will break. I am your happily married host, Jason Parham. Together, we're learning how to make marriage and love better. Today, we're going to talk about something very hard to talk about in marriage, is money. So here we go. 11 ways to keep money from destroying your relationship. For notes and references, visit fixeruppermarriage.org slash money. Money is this powerful, mysterious force that controls and changes your life. Money divides people in the classes, like the haves and the have-nots. And nothing makes people more jealous than money. Money is an intoxication. Having it makes you feel powerful, independent, and free. And not having it makes you feel weak, helpless, and bound. Money's like an addiction to a powerful drug because it can actually control you. Money is an abusive master. It manipulates you with fear and hopelessness. It beats you down. It stresses you out. And it dictates what you can and cannot do. Money is an elusive thing. It's like a mirage in the desert of life. Because when you find it, it's really never there. It's really never enough. It's like a dream that never lives up to reality. Money is a terrible lover that steals your heart and never loves you back. Money is like a God who demands your worship at all costs. It takes your soul and only gives you superficial things back. In a poll of divorced people conducted by Magnify Money, 21% of divorcees cite money as the cause of their divorce. And of course, we all know that money problems cause a lot of stress. And that stress can work to destroy your relationship. How crazy is it that like this little piece of paper can have so much power over our lives, but it does. But money only has the power that you give it. There are some ways you can keep money from hurting your love. Most money problems are self-inflicted, but sometimes things just happen. Injury, death in your family, sickness, job loss. But regardless of how you get into a financial hardship, that hardship doesn't have to mean the end of your love. Here's a quote. From Norman Vincent Peale, empty pockets never held anyone back. Only empty heads and empty hearts can do that. Okay, from the start, as a disclaimer, I am not a financial expert or a financial advisor. My focus is on how money impacts your relationship. And as a confession, money is currently something that I'm working on in my own marriage, something that I'm constantly learning and trying to get better. So maybe this whole thing is for me. I don't know. But I think you'll definitely find this episode helpful. I will leave the links to any resources in the show notes at fixeruppermarriage.org slash money. So here's a table of contents. 11 ways to keep marriage from destroying your relationship. Number one, talk about your budget together. Number two, prioritize your spending. Number three, use the ROI method to analyze your spending choices. Number four, limit your credit accounts. Number five, live within your means. Number six, save for large purchases. Number seven, don't let money be your measuring stick of success. Number eight, 
Use available resources. Number nine, give yourself some free money. Number 10, give liberally. And number 11, remember where your money really comes from. All right, number one, talk about your budget together. Don't hide things from each other. When you became one, so did your money. Your relationship is built on trust. And if you violate that trust, it can deeply harm the love that you have for each other. This is the way it should work. Husbands and wives should live in a glass house with each other. So I'm not doing something on the computer that my wife knows nothing about. I don't have relationships with other people that she's not aware of. And there's nothing on my phone that I wouldn't be comfortable with her having access to it. So you should not have like a secret savings account or money stashed away somewhere that your spouse doesn't know about. So if you feel you need to do this, there's obviously some bigger issues that you need to work on in your marriage. So it's better to confront your spouse with problems and try to deal with them than try to hide things from each other. You should not have secret credit cards or accounts that your spouse doesn't know about. Even if you think they would be okay with it, you should still be completely open with them because that okay could become not okay in a hurry when you start having other problems. I can think of two exceptions to this rule. If you are saving for a birthday or anniversary surprise, okay, that's a good reason to hide money from your spouse. And here's another one. If your spouse is abusing you, you may need to hide some money so that you can get away from them. God doesn't want you to stay in a situation where you're putting yourself in danger. So it may be necessary to come up with a plan to get away from that person that's hurting you. So here's the question that everybody asked, and it's real controversial. Should you have separate bank accounts? A controversial topic for sure. And I have heard the arguments on both sides. But what you have to remember is when you get married, you agree to share your life together, and that includes your material possessions. So this is the Bible principle. In Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God makes you one when you both enter into the covenant of marriage. This includes everything, including money. This is why you should talk about money before you get married and not marry someone that you can't trust. So you should both know what's going on with debts and with your finances. Usually like there's one person in the marriage who primarily handles the money. Things like paying the bills. Maybe it's because they're better at doing those type of things or better at keeping up with those kind of things. But both of you should know what's going on in your household. In our house, I'm usually the one that pays the bills. And I'll be honest, I don't always do a good job of communicating what's going on. There have been times when I have not told my wife we were short on money just because I didn't want to worry her. But that's a mistake because you are a team that's working together to make your marriage work. And it can't work if you're not sharing. The particulars of the account 
are not as important as the communication and the understanding that you both should have with each other. So having separate accounts is not really the issue. I mean, you could each have five separate accounts as long as you both know about it and have reached an agreement on how you're going to handle it. For instance, the spouse who primarily pays the bills may have an account to take care of those things, while the other spouse may need to manage an account to pay for things like groceries and household supplies. But the key is communicating and agreeing with each other about this beforehand. So should you have separate bank accounts? Well, you both need to answer this question together. Whatever money either of you earn belongs to both of you, and it should be treated that way. But the key is to communicate with each other. Whatever you do, make sure you communicate what's going on with each other. Talk about your short-term plans and what your expectations are. Like, if you think you should have a two-week vacation every year, you should both sit down and talk about ways to make that happen. And you should also talk about long-term plans, like saving for retirement. Even the small things, like how often you're going to eat out, are important things to plan together. It's important to understand that you're both on the same page and you're living within the principle of two lives becoming one. Number two, prioritize your spending. So this is how you do this. You divide your expenses into lists of importance. Don't get me wrong. All your bills are important and you should pay all your bills. But the things that you need matter. Narrowing those things down that are the most critical can help you plan a budget and pay your bills. This is a list that I think might make some sense. You can see this list and more at fixeruppermarriage.org money. Now, as a Christian, my top necessity is giving. I'll talk about that more later, but that's not on this list, and it's not there for a reason, but I'm not including it here. So first off, there are fixed necessities. These are things that you absolutely have to pay, and the cost for the most part stays the same. So these are things that you absolutely cannot do without housing, electricity, water is something that you have to have. Phone is something that you need. Internet could be an absolute necessity depending on your situation. Life insurance is something you absolutely need to have. You're going to have to pay your taxes no matter what, right? So that's a top priority. And maybe you're in a situation where you have a car payment and you're stuck in that car payment. So that is a fixed necessity. And then there's fluctuating things. These are necessities that are fluctuating. These are things you have to have, but the cost of these things can be adjusted somewhat. So number one, groceries. You have to have groceries, right? But this is something that you can adjust. Maybe you can plan cheaper meals. Maybe by making a plan every week and a menu, you're able to save money at the grocery store. Groceries are a necessity. That spending on groceries can be adjusted somewhat. Car insurance, you have to have car insurance, absolutely. But that can be adjusted somewhat. You can make changes to your policy. Clothing is an absolute necessity. We have to have clothes to wear. But that spending can be fluctuating. You can adjust that. You cannot spend so much on clothes. Health insurance is something that you have to have. But you may not have to have the five-star policy. There may be some things you can do differently to save money on your health insurance. The gas for your car. This is an expense that you have to have. You know what? 
we may be driving somewhere or you may be spending money on gas that you don't need to spend. You can change your driving habits and save a little bit of money on gas. Debts are something that you have to pay. But this is also something that you can negotiate. You can get those debts adjusted if you need to. And then car payments, even though that's a fixed thing as well, there are ways you can get your car payment lowered. You can get a cheaper car. You can sell the car that you have and buy something a little cheaper. You can go to the bank and spread the loan out a little bit more or whatever you need to do. And we'll talk a little bit more about car payments later. And there's optional spending. These are things you can do without or can be negotiated. I mean, things like entertainment, eating out, phones. Even though phones are a necessity, we don't necessarily have to have the latest and greatest phone. And extra clothing or hobbies, right? Hobbies are good to have. And I would recommend hobbies to anybody because I think it's a healthy thing to do. But that's something that you don't necessarily have to have. You don't necessarily have to spend money on a hobby. Or you can find a hobby that you don't have to spend so much money on. So it's a choice that we make. Travel. Travel is an optional thing. You can plan and save to travel. But maybe that big exotic trip can be a smaller trip. And it fits more into your budget. But these are things that are optional that you can change. But you have to consider your expenses and levels like this in order to prioritize your spending. Again, I'm not a financial person, but I can help you with the way your finances affect your relationship together. So you add all your expenses up and then you compare your expenses to your income. And sometimes it's kind of discouraging because it's like a negative number, but it's okay. You can work on the spending that's adjustable, the things you can change and get your life into some sort of a budget, into a balance, right? Because we're not like the government. We don't run in a deficit. Right? We have to balance our budget. So your expenses have to balance out with your income. Are you going to get yourself into a mess? Talk about what expenses are the most important to you and come up with a way to spend that keeps you under your income. Whatever works for you is fine, but it has to work or you'll live your life in the red. And living in the red is not a good place to live. The stress of trying to pay all your bills and not having the money is overwhelming. It will affect your marriage in the short term and the long term. And sometimes when you have money problems, they don't seem like such a big deal until you start having other problems. And then all of a sudden, the money problems are a huge deal in your marriage. So it's important that you keep the stress of money down in your marriage as much as you possibly can. You may discover that you could live in a smaller place. You could sell your car for a cheaper one. Or you could forego getting the latest smartphone. It's not easy things to do, but it could take a huge load of financial stress off you and your marriage. Understand what bills you should pay first. Now I said you should pay all your bills. But it's important to understand that you pay the things that are the most important first. You can do without your hobbies, but you can't do without electricity and housing. If you have debts to pay, you should pay those debts. But you have to understand that your housing, having electricity, having food on the table is more important than those debts. 
So it may hurt your credit score to pay some debts late. It may be a good thing for you to realize that you need to get out of debt. But being behind on your rent or your house payment is much worse than being behind on a credit card payment. You just can't look at all your expenses the same way because they're not. So the sooner you understand this, the better off you'll be. So there's this Bible principle of being a good steward of the money and the resources that God has given you. It's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. You can apply this to your marriage. When you're paying your bills and you're doing your finances, you do that to the best of your ability and you do it as you're serving the Lord. So handling your money wisely and doing the right thing with your money is not only an honorable thing to do and a good thing to do to keep stress off your marriage, it's also a way of giving your life to Christ. Number three, use the ROI method to analyze your spending choices. Now, I'm just naming this method because it seems to make sense to me. But ROI is used in the business and marketing world. It stands for return on investment. So when a company makes a decision for future investments, they consider what the return from that investment will be. But you can apply this same idea to marriage and your finances. Before you make a decision about your spending, think of it as an investment with a potential return. And think about how that return could influence your relationship. So all the returns may not be financial, but could be rewarding in other ways. So ask yourself the question before you spend the money. Is the return going to be worth what we are spending? Here's a practical example. Let's say I need a car to drive back and forth to work every day. So I'm considering my dream classic car, a 1967 Chevy Camaro. It's my dream. And I could get it for only about $30,000. So then I also have to consider the maintenance of an older car, and having a safe place to store it. So there's more money on top of that. But the return on investment is that I have a ride to work, which is very important. But is the return of having a ride to work worth investing that much? You know, although I love to have my dream car, it would make more sense to purchase a reliable, reasonably priced used car. So I get the same return with a much smaller investment. There's nothing wrong with you having your dream car as long as you can afford to have that dream car. But think of your spending as return on an investment. Here's another example. Let's say that we are renting a house and considering buying a house instead. So we look at buying a large house in an upscale neighborhood that is the absolute maximum loan amount that we can qualify for. So the return of that investment is having a place to stay and maybe even building some equity, right? But purchasing a smaller house that doesn't max out your income could offer a better return in the long run. You would have less stress trying to pay a massive mortgage. And you would have more disposable income to buy other things that you may need. A smaller place could be a better return on investment. By the way, okay, less stress in your marriage could mean a better relationship. And when you think about it, you have to have housing regardless. So you could continue to rent and save for a down payment so that you could purchase a nicer house later on 
without having to max out your income. So by waiting and saving, you could even have an even better return on investment. So determine what expenses are best for your situation. Everybody's circumstances are different. So consider the personal return on your long-term spending before you spend. This can save you a lot of heartache and give you the peace of mind that you're both spending your money in ways that give you the best return. Here's an example from my personal life. Insurance doesn't always have a return until you need it. Early in our marriage, we wanted to get new phones because we had like dinosaurs compared to everybody else. So when my income increased a little bit, we were excited, both excited to see that we had some funds available to get these phones. The problem is that I had no life insurance and my wife is a stay-at-home mom. So we grudgingly made the decision to use that money to purchase a policy for both of us. So the return on investment was the peace of mind of knowing that things were taken care of if something happened to either of us. Whereas the return on investment on having the latest phones would have been looking cooler and having the latest gadgets. By the way, we did eventually get the latest gadgets. We just had to wait on that. And that's the way a lot of things are with your finances and your marriage. You're better off waiting. Thinking about your spending as an investment will change not only the way you spend, but it changes the impact of that spending on your marriage relationship. And the investment and the return is not always money. Sometimes you have to understand that there are things in life that are worth more than money. The return on your investment could be an education for your children. It could be a more stable marriage. Moving may be tough financially, but if moving puts you near a church that would help your family, that sounds like a really good investment to me. The investment could be your time. So by investing more time in your marriage and family, you could produce a return that is worth far more than money. Number four, limit your credit accounts. This is a big one. Debt is a massive problem for people today. According to the latest findings from Northwest Mutual's 2020 Planning and Progress Study, among Americans who carry debt, the average amount of debt, excluding mortgages, is $26,621. And 33% of their income goes to paying that debt off. I want to tell you something. Credit cards are like snakes. You can probably tell by listening to me that I have learned this from experience. If you cannot afford something, it is so tempting just to make the payments on it. And those easy payments can cause you not to look at the actual amount you're spending. Then to make matters worse, most of the time you have to pay interest. So you're even paying more for the thing that you're buying. So here's a practical example that I think you understand. And this is real life shopping online that I did. So let's say that I'm shopping for a laptop and I was recently. I'm shopping for a laptop on bestbuy.com. So these are live prices. Best Buy is a large online electronics retailer. So I have $400 saved up to purchase a laptop. I find one for $1,499 at Best Buy. This is way out of my price range. But I see that I can get it for 
only $83.34 per month for 18 months. Now, $1,499 is way out of my price range. But $83 per month temporarily, that sounds a little bit more manageable to me. Well, then I look and I realize that I could get an even better model for only a few dollars more more per month. So the upgrade of that model is $91.67 per month. So initially, I had planned on spending $400 for a new laptop. But now I'm spending, without really realizing it, $1,649.99 instead. And it's even worse when you use a credit card because you are paying interest on top of that. So you can really get yourself in a mess by making monthly credit payments on the things you buy. Because all those little manageable payments that you can't afford can add up to bigger payments that you just can't. So if you use credit or credit cards, you have to treat them like the snakes that they are. Be very careful. Buy things based on their total cost and pay them off sooner rather than on schedule. This keeps you above water financially and keeps a lot of stress off of you. You are a servant to your lenders. The Bible actually says a lot about money. And this is one principle that the Bible gives about debt. In Proverbs 22, verse 7, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. You are becoming a servant to any debt that you incur. Because you are indebted to someone or some company, you are slowly giving up little parts of your life to them. In my opinion, buying a house is a good thing to be in debt for. As long as your payments are 25 to 30% of your monthly net income. So just because the bank says that you qualify for more doesn't mean that you should spend more. Again, I'm not a financial counselor. I'm just a regular person like you. And I live in like a more rural area. So if you live in a major city, the housing may have to be a much bigger percentage. But I am talking about how debt impacts your relationship. As long as you don't owe more on your house than it's worth, I see it as a good thing. You just have to understand that when you go into debt, that you're giving up little parts of your freedom. You don't really own that thing until you pay it off with interest to the person or company who really owns it. You also have to balance out your wants in relation to your needs. So like in the example above with the laptop, I was shopping for a laptop to use to help homeschool my kids. And even though that really nice $1,600 model was something I would really want. I found one on sale for $300 instead. And spoiler alert, it works just fine. And I don't have to make any payments on it. So it's okay to get the things you want if you can afford it. But you have to find the balance between the needs and the wants. Hi, I'm Aubrey. Jason's my dad. Are you enjoying this episode? Then stop listening right now and share with someone. I'll wait for you. Okay, did you tell someone about the podcast? I hope you're enjoying the rest of this episode. And thank you so much for listening. So number five, live within your means. So this seems like an obvious thing, but living within your means can be one of the hardest things to do. 
and figure out figuring out and accepting what those means are can be a big challenge. So what are your means? Your means are living where you can afford to live, driving what you can afford to drive, and buying only those things you can afford to buy. So everyone's situation is a little different. But the concept is really simple. It's almost too simple. But if it's so simple, why do people struggle with it so much? It's just so tempting to buy those things that you want or think you need without thinking about whether or not you can afford it. Why don't we live within our means? This is where the rubber meets the road. Lurching behind your desire to live above your means is like this root problem that's so basic that God addressed it in the Ten Commandments. It's thou shalt not covet. Covetousness is something rooted in jealousy. It means that you want something that someone else has so much that you are filled with envy. So when someone else gets something that you don't have, instead of being happy for them, you're just eaten up with jealousy. You then do whatever you have to do to get what they have or even something better. I think that most debts are rooted in this wicked desire of coveting. There are a lot of people who are just driven to have what everyone else has or to have something better than what the people they personally know have. As a Christian, life is about using the resources that God has given you in a way that honors him. You can read about this Bible principle in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. So it's not about what you have or don't have. It's about how you use what God has allowed you to have. It's not about what you have or don't have. It's about how you use the things that God has put in your life. But what about things you can't control? Some debts come from things like medical bills or job loss. And health problems are really tough because you rack up medical bills and because you're having health problems, you have no way to pay them off. If this happens, you just do the best you can. You can write hospitals. They may have some assistance available. Most will work out payment plans. It just takes some time to work through those things. Just keep in mind that you prioritize your bills. So you can't take money from your basic living expenses to pay off debts. Once you have your spending priorities right, you can start paying off debts. Paying off debts, especially credit card debt, it can be the best investment you can make in your relationship. If you're living in debt right now, you will feel completely different not having to carry this load around. You really are a servant to your debts until you are free from them. Number six, save for large purchases. This is a different way of buying things than you may be used to. You save up your money with the goal of buying the things that you want. So when you buy those things, they're yours. You don't have to make payments. You don't have to use a credit card. They belong to you. I know people who are just great at saving money. They put money in the bank and just let it accumulate. Other people are like me, and to be honest, I have trouble saving money. And maybe you have some ideas about saving money, some creative ways to do that. You're welcome to leave them in the comments under the post at fixeruppermarriage.org money. 
But one way of saving that we have been successful at in the past is saving with a goal in mind of purchasing something. But one way of saving that we have been successful at in our marriage is saving with a goal in mind. So instead of getting something on credit, you save until you can pay cash for it. Now, since we've been married, my wife and I have been able to do this with all our vehicles. But there are times when we've had to wait on those vehicles. So we've had to drive older cars or fix what's wrong with our car and keep driving it, especially at first. But over time, you upgrade until you have a newer vehicle. Right now, we drive a car that's only a couple of years old. It has very low mileage. That's awesome, and we own it. But you can do this with all of your larger purchases. Save up until you have enough just to buy it outright. This way, you don't have to stress in your marriage of having to make payments that you may not be able to afford. The hard part about this is the waiting. But the waiting brings you the greatest reward. Maybe you're not in a position where you can do this right now. But make it your goal of getting to that point of living this kind of way. I understand that sometimes you get in a situation where you may have to use credit. I do understand that. But just so that you understand, the more debt that you carry, the more stress you're putting on your marriage. Number seven, don't let money be your measuring stick of success. There's this deception of comparing yourself to other people. I mean, to look at the things that other people have and hear them talk about how much they make, then you try to compare your circumstances to theirs, and it's just not a good thing to do. The truth is, you don't know their circumstances, so there's really no way to make that comparison. This is especially true with social media. People only post their high points, but they have low points just like you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we find a principle, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. So it's not wise to compare yourself, to measure yourself with other people. One of my favorite writers is Mark Twain. He was a colorful author of American literature. And one of his famous quotes is, Comparison is a death of joy. And I have found that quote to be true. If you measure your worth with others, you are making a huge mistake. And this is a mistake that a lot of couples make. To have a competitive house, to put your kids in a competitive school, driving a competitive car, or even having competitive clothes are all waste of your resources. Life is not a competition to see who can have the most stuff. The irony is, in not getting caught up with having what other people have, you end up having something that they don't have. A contented heart and a satisfied mind is the most important thing to have. The Apostle Paul was this incredible Christian who wrote 13, maybe even 14 books of the Bible. He struggled through doubters and imprisonment on his journey for Christ. This is what he said he learned. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, in whatsoever state I am, 
therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. As a Christian, you have to learn how to handle having extra and not having enough. That means learning to be content where you are in life. Contentment means that you're satisfied with the means that God has given you. So the measuring stick for your success should be your contentment. Number eight, use available resources. There are a lot of resources available about finances. Budgeting is something that we struggle with a lot. But I believe it's the best way to manage your money. One thing that we had success with budgeting for a while was what's called the envelope system. So when we were first married, my wife kept envelopes in her purse with cash in these envelopes. And each envelope was labeled for things like eating out, groceries, or gas. So we both agreed on how much cash to put in each envelope. So this way we could see how much money we had left throughout the week for things like eating out or groceries. So this worked for us really good until some circumstances changed and we could no longer do it. But although right now with all the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020, some businesses are not even taking cash. So I guess, so I guess you couldn't do the envelope system right now. This seems kind of strange to me because they are touching your card in most places, but that's just me. So there are a lot of software that do something similar to what we did then. There are a lot of resources to help you do your budget. There's this podcast that I listen to sometimes. It's called YNAB, which is short for You Need a Budget. So I'm trying a free trial right now. I will comment in the show notes to let you know how that goes. But they have some software and a free trial that you can use. It's an app that I've been wanting to try. So we're going to give that a try and see how it works. And my wife and I learned a lot from the book that we read when we first got married. It's called The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. It also comes with a nice workbook, and I would definitely recommend this book. We were able to pay off some debts, and the principles that we learned from that book have kept us out of a lot of financial problems. He also has a popular podcast and radio call-in show. I have also had people recommend Crown Financial Ministries to me. I did check that out, and it looked like everything was from a Christian perspective, which is great. It was founded by the late Larry Burkett, who hosted a radio show called Money Matters. You might also find resources in your circle of family and friends. I personally know some people who are really good with handling finances, and they're willing to offer advice or encouragement whenever I need it. My father-in-law is actually the person who purchased the book Total Money Makeover for us when we were first married, and it has been very helpful to us. So you may have some resources that are closer to you than you think. So maybe you have some resources that you would like to recommend. Just visit fixeruppermarriage.org slash money and leave a comment under the show notes. I'm sure that everyone would appreciate you sharing. Number nine, give yourself some free money. Sometimes you can get so determined to save money or pay off debts that you just like lock yourself in this money prison And you can't spend a penny on yourself. Something similar happens when you get married and you start sharing finances. Before you were married, you just bought whatever you wanted. But now you have to consider the needs and the wants of your spouse. Then when you have children, 
a whole new set of financial consideration comes into play. This is why I'm recommending that both husbands and wives have a set amount to spend on themselves just to be able to buy whatever you want. Maybe you want to have a hobby or you want to save to buy something for yourself. So what we do, we have these prepaid cards. A set amount goes into each one through direct deposit every time I get paid. It's not the same thing as having secret money, but it's just money to do or buy whatever you want without having to feel guilty about it. I'm sure there are other ways of doing this. I mean, the main thing is that you both talk about your spending and what the expectations are for both of you. Number 10, give liberally. Okay, this is what being a Christian is really all about. So the reason I did not include the giving in the list above is because I believe that that giving should come directly from your income. The Bible uses the word increase. So as you are paid, as your resources increase, you give a portion of that back to God. So how much should you give? For thousands of years, Christians have used a tenth or tithe as a standard for giving. So that is 10% of your income. You can find this principle throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Malachi. Here it is, Malachi 3.10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. Improve me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. The tithe is a standard. It's like a baseline for your giving. The actual word is not mentioned in the New Testament, but it is implied as a standard of giving. In the New Testament, the people in church were known for their giving. You can see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 6. But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, so that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work." If you are stingy with your giving, expect God to be stingy in blessing you. I'm just saying, if you are not in a place where you can give the standard of a tithe, it should be your goal to get to that point. You should be generous with giving your money and your time. So who should you give to? Well, obviously, you're giving back to God, but you give that money to a local church. There are plenty of people who are asking for money today, and I'm not discrediting any of them. But the model from the Bible is to give through your local church. So you find a church that is doctrinally sound, and you get involved with the giving. As a Christian, when you join a church, you pull your resources together, and you help take the gospel to people who are not Christians. God designed the local church to be supported by the giving of the people who are the members. So the church needs a building for ministry. And most ministries cost money to operate. That is where your generous giving steps in. You are giving that money back to God by willingly investing in his church. And you should also be known for giving to people in need. Christians should be known for 
loving and giving to other people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the churches that were in Macedonia took up collections for other Christians who needed money for ministry. They gave this money while they were suffering in poverty. So we should all be willing to give of what we have, even if it's a small amount. But Christians should have a reputation for giving. Finally, number 11, remember where your money really comes from. Sometimes we all think that we are providing for our own needs by working a job. But that's really not the case. Who gave you the ability to work? Ultimately, God is your provider. He is the one who provides for you. He may use your job to do that, but he is the one taking care of you. So you have to trust him with your life and your needs. This is hard to do, but it's a necessity for every Christian to understand. God is your provider. God is the one who takes care of you. So in conclusion, 11 ways you can keep money from destroying your relationship. Number one, talk about your budget together. Number two, prioritize your spending. Number three, use the return on investment method to analyze your spending. Number four, limit your credit accounts. Number five, live within your means. Number six, save for large purchases. Number seven, don't let money be your measuring stick of success. Number eight, use available resources. Number nine, give yourself some free money. Number 10, give liberally. Number 11, remember where your money really comes from. Thank you so much for listening to the Fixer Upper Marriage Podcast. If you have found this episode helpful, consider sharing it with a friend. Remember that God has great things planned for your marriage. So don't miss it.